Hey, hey, hey! I'm your host, Armin Prasher, and you're listening to Literal Talks. Once again, new listeners, welcome! And if you are a regular listener, as always, thank you so much for your continuous support throughout the journey so far. Anyways, like you would remember from the last episode, uh, we finished off our novel, first novel, coverage of Origin, and today we will be starting off with the second book within our 8-week time frame, Inferno. And this is the book uh, which we'll be spending the next three weeks on, you know, uh, two episodes like we did in Origin where we covered the f- um, themes, uh, you know, the summary of the book, my opinions on it, and then uh, the, the last week, um, you know, like the episode from last week, uh, the third week in this book for Inferno will be spent on, you know, uh, more of like a review segment where I'll give it a mark at a 20 i think it was that i did for origin yeah 20 uh and yeah that'll wrap up inferno and you know what comes in the ninth week we'll be inviting guests on the show and getting their opinions on both origin and inferno well with much as without much else said let's get right into today's episode where we once again talk about a masterpiece from dan brown the predecessor of origin inferno let's go Alright guys, so like we did with Origin, today we will be going along the same formatting system as we did for that novel. And of course by this I mean that first I'll be giving you a very quick introduction to the premise of the novel. And once again, just again, uh, re-jog your memory about the author and our main character to make sure that everyone is on the same page. From there, we will once again move to a very brief, short and sweet summary. That's what I'm going to call it for now. Very brief, short and sweet. Sounds kind of cool. Summary of the first half of the book, which will be around, again, that uh, 230 mark. And from there, we will have a longer segment uh, on the first key themes of the book again. And finally, talk about the skill of the writing in this first half of the book. And this will be the clinical and technical segment, as I'm sure you guys already know. And lastly, we'll wrap it up with a quick conclusion where I'll tell you a bit more about the next episode and just in a few lines summarize this one. And yeah, that'll be the end of the episode. But we got a lot of exciting stuff to talk about before we reach that state of the episode. So without any further ado, let's do this. <laughs> so to get started, let's just quickly refresh our memories, like I said, about the author and our main character and the Brooks series Origin is a part of. Well, firstly, like we discussed in the very first episode, Dan Brown is an American author who writes a large number of mystery and thriller novels. And most of his stories fall into the that genre of writing, you know, uh, thrill, thriller, thrill writing, uh, things like that. And like I've said previously, this particular series of his is called the Robert Langdon series and consists of five best-selling novels. Angels and Demons being the first one, followed up by Da Vinci Code, third one was Lost Symbol, Next was our current novel, Inferno, and finally the latest novel was, not Inferno, Origin, uh, that we covered in the last three episodes. Uh, Three of these novels have also been turned into uh, movies on the big screen, and these being the most, the three most famous, I can't speak, three most famous books, there we go, uh, Angels and Demons, The Da Vinci Code, and our focus, Inferno, was also turned into a movie with actor Tom Hanks playing the role of Robert Langdon. Now, speaking of him, as you would have already guessed, Langdon is our major focal point in this book, as he's our main character, who binds the whole series together, you know, I've already talked about all of that in previous episodes, and as we've already discussed by profession, Robert is a Harvard professor, specialized in the fields of art and symbology. 
And, um, you know, naturally, these are also the topics around which most of his adventures revolve. And now, a thing I did want to mention here was that as we go through Inferno, keep in mind that this book actually takes place before Origin does. So we're seeing a premature, almost, version of Langdon as to the one we read about in Origin. Meaning that any of the events that transpired in that novel aren't going to be influencing or modulating or changing his decision-making in this novel. As in, you know, a sense that when we're talking about him in this book, those events haven't even happened to him. So, like, okay, if his life was turned into a timeline, the events of this book are happening before the events of Origin. So just keep a, keep that in mind, you know? um, Don't think that his decisions, like I said, are being influenced by anything that happened in Origin, because... Even though I'm covering it after Origin, these things actually took place in his life before, you know, whatever happened in Origin in that book. So, yeah, just keep that in mind. I thought I should just get it out there. And, yeah, that was about what I wanted to cover really quickly. And with that, let's move straight ahead into a quick summary of the first half of Inferno. So, yeah, let's get into it. So, this book, much like its successor, starts off with an absolute bang. This just seems to be a constant, you know, repetitive variable in every Dan Brown novel that I've read. Actually, can't really speak from experience there. I've only read two. This is my second. Uh, but this time, we get something different in the prologue itself, as it starts off on a completely different note. And this prologue sets up the mood for the rest of the novel, and we get, you know, we're left pretty confused and wanting to know more. And, you know, this is more of the generic prologue, rather than the one that we got in Origin, because in Origin, right, it started from, like, the beginning point was established in the prologue, and then the book started rolling from there. Uh, except here, uh, prologue starts at a point where, you know, God knows where, but, like, okay, this is uh, where it's a bit confusing, though, because if you, like, once you've read a bit of Inferno, you would realize that, the event that takes place in the prologue is actually the first thing that has happened within the parameters of the timeline that Inferno is taking place. But you still don't really understand it. So what I'm trying to say is that Origin started off um, on a note where you completely understood what was going on and actually felt that that was the beginning point of the book. But here in Inferno, you get a much more conventional, I want to say, thriller prologue where... It's still the first thing that happens, you know, if you're talking about the entire timeline, but you don't really realize it at that point, and you don't really get what's going on. So, in reality, the book really starts from chapter one, and the prologue is sort of like a trailer into the whole book, uh, where in books like Origin, there is no trailer, you know? Like, prologue is almost like chapter one, and then chapter one is almost like chapter two. I get that that's a bit confusing, but that's what I felt with this prologue. But, you know, as the book starts rolling, we are, of course, introduced to Robert once again. But this time, we find that there is something wrong with him. This being that he is in a hospital bed with no memory of how he got there. But things are complicated, more complicated for our protagonist right away as he's thrown into conflict within the starting few chapters and his world once again explodes into chaos. This just seems to be a constant factor for this man. I don't know. He seems kind of like a poor guy always gets in the middle of violence it's pretty funny <laughs> but moving on um 
Through this chaos, though, Langan realizes that he has a mysterious object in his possession and begins a journey to sort of understand and recognize what the meaning of this object is. And of course, as in the last novel, he does have the support of his sidecast, but this time it's only consisting of one major character who helps Robert in his quest to understand, you know, after they share a high-octane threatening situation together. So they're kind of bonded together. That's how I feel it took place, you know? And it is also during these early phases of the book that we learn our setting for this adventure, that being the city of Florence located in Italy. Also, from my experience with Dan Brown, it seems that most of his books, he likes to set them in Europe because this one's set in Italy, you know, Inferno, and then Origin was set in Spain. So it seems like he is sort of a fan of that European vibe in his books, and I respect that. And then moving on, we learned some surprising reveals about Robert's companion for this book, and I feel like it doesn't really fit in to like where they're revealed. Like I didn't really understand, but it does give us an inkling about her past endeavors and experiences. So I just took it. And in this half of the book, we also learn that Robert and his sidecast aren't the only ones after this mysterious object, as we're introduced to an entire organization which makes profit through some sketchy dealings. And you know, after this object, you know, and after this object lost my bit of there uh after this uh object from one of their clients i'll leave it at sketchy dealings because it's a bit more complicated than that but if i say any more i feel like i would uh spoil a buddha spoil a buddha what spoil a book a bit um so yeah i'll leave it there i i feel like you guys should discover that for yourself and let's just move on again so after various run-ins with you know the people of this organization throughout the book we learn the true contents of this package a series of hidden codes, and this then sets Robert on a subsequent chase, attempting to understand the meaning of this discovery while also running from what seems to be basically everyone in Italy. That's the only way I can put it. There's a lot of people after him in this book. But see, uh, the way I would clear it up for someone who hasn't read Inferno yet is that this discovery made about uh, what's inside this object is very short it doesn't take too long it's only in a span of a few chapters but the actual thing is what happens after he makes his discovery because that is where the book really kickstarts and that's where it really starts rolling from so yeah don't think that figuring out what's inside like the object is a major part of it it is you know but it finishes off pretty early into the novel so i would say you know the more interesting chase or the more more you know, plot, like the rising action in the book really starts after they've figured out what's in, um, you know, the object. And I was a bit surprised by this because I thought that it would take them, you know, a bit longer. <laughs> it really didn't take them that long. Which is kind of cool, though. I was expecting something different. I got something different and I enjoyed it. Um, you know, while running, like I said, from everyone, it seems. And here, you know, around this boulevard of the novel, we're also introduced into the fine details of Italian art, and we're taken through numerous monumental buildings in Robert's quest for understanding. Again, like in Origin, there's a lot of arti art, art, artistic, there we go, artistic references in the novel, and I don't know, like I said, I wasn't a huge fan of them in Origin, and... Honestly, I didn't really enjoy them in this book 
but let's just leave that for later. Let's move on with the summary. And we're also finally introduced to someone who seems to be our main antagonist for the novel, and we learn a bit about his life. We discover that, you know, he's strongly obsessed with changing human experience through the process of ending the world as we know it. Kind of a dark guy, <laughs> if I were to say honestly. Um, again, his ideas are, you know, what really builds the book. So, okay, I, I can't really say what, you know, he's talking about. But uh, we sort of discuss his philosophy in the thematic section. So stick around for that. But I'll just leave it there. Uh, he wants to change human experience through the process of ending the world as we know it. Take from that what you will. But everything, the hidden codes, this mysterious adversary, and the reveals... Why did I say that weird? Reveals made about Langdon's actions and whereabouts on the night before his admittance into the hospital all cycle back to two things. One, the famous Italian writer, poet, and philosopher Dante Alighieri and his creation of one of the most influential depictions of hell the dark epic poem, Dante's Inferno. There you go, guys. <laughs> I'll leave it there for you. This is my summary of the first half of the book. And I do realize it's a bit on the longer side by comparison. But just so much more happens in this half of the novel. And I'm so very excited for the climax of the book. And, um, you know... It's definitely much more confusing and builds much, much, much more anticipation. So the next half of the book will provide a lot more clarity, at least I hope. And Dan Brown, you know, has once again set up the book so beautifully. And I just hope that he use, uses this setup and provides us with a really, high, uh, you know, hyped derp, uh, hyper uh, climax where, you know, all the action that's sort of lost in the buildup is, uh, you know, sort of made up for in that scene. I'm really hoping for that because this book is just set up very, very, very well. And I would be a bit, dis bit disappointed if, again, the climax is lackluster. I'm really hoping it's not, though. Yeah, we'll just have to see, wait for next episode. But yeah, that is my summary. And from here, we move on to the next section where I will be discussing the key themes of the book. Once again... Let's get into it. Alright guys, so in terms of this book, Inferno, I feel that there are some key themes that we need to cover over the course of the two episodes covering this book. These themes that we will be covering, firstly, will be society and overpopulation, and morality and the conceptions of the afterlife. Now, as you can see, these themes are a bit more specific and, but, you know, should be just as fun to talk about as the four from Origin. But as you would have also noticed, there's only two themes, meaning that we will only be doing one of them today and the last theme in the next episode. But there is a while to get to the next episode, and until we do, let's have a conversation about society and overpopulation. With that said, let's begin. So, Let's start it off with the topic, you know, like I said, society's connection to overpopulation. I feel that this is a really big one to talk about and one of the most interesting themes covered in this novel. So to begin, in my opinion, one of the biggest, or in fact, the biggest threat 
that is face that that is no that humanity is facing right now is a threat of overpopulation. There are of course others like climate change, cultural drifts, etc. But I feel that those can be fixed and surpassed with you know relatively simple things like open communication and appreciation for humanity as a whole and the technology that we have. Now, before moving on, I just want to clear up that I do believe these threats are also very, very serious. And by simple things, I mean that in the context of the situation. And that'll make more sense in just a little bit. But with the problem of overpopulation, though, you're entering sort of into the realm of uncertainty as to how we can, you know, fix this problem. Because logically, the longer a species survives or thrives, the more exponentially the numbers of that species are going to grow. So this is never going to stop. You know, kids are never going to stop being born. That's kind of obvious. Um, but there are ways to slow down this progression, but they will never completely come to a halt. Which is why I believe this to be a conundrum. Because there are no permanent solutions to this issue. The only way to curb this increase is if the number of births is equivalent or lesser than the number of deaths inside of a given time frame. Let's take that as a year. And this is where the true problem of fixing this issue lies for me. It's a dark, dark truth because at the rate of increase that we're going at right now, Earth will not be able to sustain this level of growth for long. Logically, if you look at this problem, you could say that the simplest way to solve this is by eliminating a certain proportion of the population. But that's completely wrong in my opinion. We often justify tough actions with a simple phrase, the ends justify the means, but that philosophy does not and is not going to suffice in this situation because even if we do get to that end or you know that destination, we need to ask ourselves, you know, if we get there, would we have kept that quality of humanness and humanity within us? So yeah, that is out of the window. But then arises the question of how can we deal with this problem? Because currently our population growth rate is around 1.05% per year. And while it may, you know, that seems paltry, it's not even 10%. That is actually 81 million people every year. And by just the year 2050, which again seems like a really long time away, it's only 29 years away. And there, by that time, there's going to be an additional 2.3 billion people on our planet. And, you know, that is, of course, if the population growth rate holds steady. And this is where the twist in the situation comes, though, because there is a positive to this. Because scientists believe that the number of births is going to lessen in the second half of the century. You know, that, of course, means after 2050. And it is believed that the number of deaths per year are either going to match or surpass the number of births in that time frame, meaning that slowly population growth is going to come to an end. Now, when I personally first read this report, I was, you know, a bit skeptical because, I don't know, it kind of seemed shady to me. But if you just do some research, you can see that statistically, this claim is sound. Population growth rate has already began dropping from 1.12% in 2017 to 1.10% in 2018 to 1.08% in 2019 and like I just said, 1.05% in 2020. So, by those trends, population growth won't be a problem in the second half of this century. But then, this raises another question, you know? That is, that what will be the conditioning of our planet when this rate does neutralize? 
And this brings about, you know, a whole different conversation. And this is why some people claim that there needs to be a more urgent shift in population growth. And this is exactly the points made by the main antagonist of the novel. And as you can see, there's a lot of points, you know, loopholes into this debate. And I'll just leave it there for this theme. You know, it's quite complex. And yeah, I'll leave it there. You can have your opinions, but I feel this is definitely a tough one to talk about because there's really no ethically or morally right solution i would say to really you know accelerate that uh drop in population growth rate so i feel like there's not really much we can do we can wait for that popular that growth rate to drop automatically like it's already starting to that's going to take around another like i said a few decades and who knows what our earth will be like then because climate change like i said plays right into the hands of overpopulation because even if overpopulation slows down, if climate change doesn't, you know, if we don't do anything about global warming, it isn't really going to matter because the next generation that is going to be coming into, you know, our world and the people that are going to be living at that point of time, which will be my generation and maybe the people that are listening to this, your generation, what kind of life will they have with the population, not with the population, with the environment, the way that we're going about it right now. So I feel like it's definitely a bit heavier topic to talk about but i feel like it's also necessary to talk about because it's there we cannot ignore it and maybe this is the kickstart that we need but yeah i'll leave it there for this theme let's move on <laughs> so connecting it back to dan brown and his writing in this book i feel that there are some positives and negatives in the way that he's incorporated this thematic scheme into inferno to start it off again, like I sort of just mentioned, I feel that I really just enjoyed his choice of theme in this novel because I feel that this is a serious discussion that we need to have and a best-selling novel like this opens up just another perspective into this problem and presents us with a crucial topic to think about, which I really enjoyed. I, I found that it was very good for him to tackle this theme in this book. I feel he does it very well as well because he masterfully explores a new theme while still relating it back to art and symbology. You know, talking about Dante and his Divine Comedy, which he's already really comfortable writing around. So, you know, he's sort of exploring an area where he really hasn't went before, but he always has a cushion to fall back on, on in art and symbology, which is what he does very, very well in this novel. And yeah, I really like the way he approaches this issue, and his presentation of it is also extremely pleasing to read. But again, similar to his themes in Inferno, I do have some nitpicks about them. Firstly, I feel that he is a bit too eager about reminding us what his themes are for the novel. And now I do get that this might sound confusing, but just hear me out. So what I mean by this is that he seems to be constantly reminding us what the theme of the novel is in almost every chapter. And I think that this is a bit unpleasant because he's sort of taking away the subtleness to the novel and this constant reminder kind of dilutes the mystery surrounding the theme itself and you know what this does and because of this everything everything is put upon the climactic scene to bring about some major plot twist or major plot change because even just in the first half Dan Brown has already limited the magnitude that a thematic twist or reveal could have. Yeah, 
because he has reminded us about it so much that, like I said, it's always going to be in the back of people's minds. So it won't seem really natural or, yeah, it won't really flow with the, you know, the way the book is rolling right now. If he was to make a thematic change or a thematic twist and you know like i said that is not possible because of the times that he has made it clear that this is his focus for the novel um you know maybe if he hadn't done that so much there could still be that leeway there but i feel like if uh, the good thing about this is that if he's going all in he has put a lot of effort into this theme and that can be seen coming through in his writing and I don't know, I just feel that that puts, puts, you know, that extra bit of pressure on the climax scene. And I'm really, really hoping again for another reason that the climax is a strong one. And yeah, though, that about concludes this thematic, you know, section. And for now, we'll of course coming back to it uh, in the next episode. And we'll follow along with the menu plan for this episode. And with that, we move on to discussing the writing in the first half of the book. See you on the other side. Bye-bye. Not none. Not bye-bye. Okay, we're still talking in this episode. Don't go anywhere. We still have one more segment left. Alright, guys. So, like you know, this is the last segment for our purposes here today. And here, we will be focusing on the writing prowess of the author, the prologue, the introductory phases of the book, and the character arcs so far in the novel. Again, as you might realize, this is the exact format we used for our first book, and we'll go along the same lines. Anyways, let's get right into it. So, kicking it off with the prologue and... I mean, what was that? Of Inferno, there we go. We get a classic kickoff into a thriller novel, as, you know, we get a generic, mysterious, and confusing entree, with a mystifying and bizarre character being the first thing we read about as we get into the novel. I feel that there is a sort of calming comfort in this generic method, and the reasoning for this is because a classic, thrilling prologue will just never, ever get old. Uh, the thing that I love about this prologue, though, is that, you know, it's a great segue into the actual book, and prologues like these always allow you to take in the mood and the setting of the novel before you're launched head-on into the actual book. So the genius, though, of this particular prologue is that it provides you with some key terms about the novel and then leaves you questioning, you know, what that could have to do with anything later rather than, you know, just giving you some random or general scenario like a killing of a random person or something like that. But, you know, I also really like this prologue because it introduces you to a particular individual that plays a very strong role in the latter parts of the book. Um, yeah, overall, it's a very solid beginning to the book. And the last thing I wanted to mention here was the fact that the prologue has everything. I mean, every single thing that you would hope in a prologue. But, you know, obviously, it's Dan Brown. He's a very skilled writer. But the more impressive thing is that all of these things, every single thing that happens in the prologue, is explained either before or by the midpoint of the novel. And what this does for the book is that it, you know, gives that mystery and confusion that was presented to you right when you open the covers enough time to marinate, but then it doesn't leave it too late to be forgotten about and left to the side. And I feel like the reveals or clarifications made about the prologue just flow and follow very well 
within the you know situation of what is going on in the book at that time. So I feel that these reveals are very strategically and meticulously placed within that plotline to you know give you sort of like a fresher scenery almost from whatever is going on, and it works wonders. I feel that this method, this prologue, everything was very, very, very solid. And yeah, I feel that Dan Brown, like I said, has done an admirable job in the writing of this prologue as it provides you with action right away to hook you into the novel, but leaves a mystery, so you want to keep reading. And like I said, despite being sort of like a generic entrance into the house that is a thriller novel, its strength makes it an attractive beginning of what, spoiler, tends up to be a brilliant novel overall. And yeah, the last thing I want to mention about this, wait, I guess, I guess I just said that the last thing I said would be the final thing, but stay with me here, is that uh, this prologue also succeeds in setting a very good tempo to the book because it starts off on a really high note and establishes the benchmark of how fast you know, the book should be moving and, you know, most likely will be moving. And, you know, that is a great transition into the next thing I wanted to talk about in this segment, the introductory and middle phases of the novel leading up to the halfway point in the book. So getting right into it again, I feel that this book sort of slacks off a bit in the introductory and middle phases of its writing. And the reason I feel this way is because, like I just said, the prologue starts on a very high note. And at least for me, you know, I just felt that at least for a few dozen chapters, the author needed to make sure that the momentum is maintained and that it keeps running on that high to ensure the entertainment of the reader. But the thing is that after the first couple chapters, it slows down considerably. Why did I say that so weird? Um, but yeah, it slows down a lot. And even though it's still fun to read. It just doesn't have that same tempo, I would say again, as the start. Which is rare again, I feel, because, you know, if you usually draw a line on a graph to represent the action in any novel, it usually starts at, it lo at its lowest point and just keeps rising. But with many thriller novels now, you get a different story because it starts on a high point. Then there's a dip in the middle, you know, where the action sort of you know, sort of sizzles out, and then the incline begins again, closer to the climax of the novel. So you sort of begin with, uh, I wouldn't want to say rising action, but you sort of begin action, goes down, rising action, climax, falling action, goes down again. So I feel like that is sort of the plot line that most of the thriller novels follow now. And, you know, that's again, the exact idea that play takes place in Inferno, because even though this section is written in sort of a way that is supposed to be high octane, you know, it's supposed to be intense. Sometimes I feel that too much time is being spent on getting the character arcs going and, you know, sort of the rhythm of the book in place that you actually forget that Langdon is supposed to be in a threatening situation throughout the whole novel. And, you know, even though it's it's a great prequel, not, yeah, it's a, just, just it's, it's a very good prologue to keep its audience engaged, it needs to keep those engagement levels satisfied. And I don't know, it just doesn't do it for me in the first few dozen chapters. But, you know, I feel that it 
again, provides very limited action in this phase. And it is a very progressive novel. And, you know, it takes at times really getting into the action. And this is where the story completely changes for me. Because once it nears the halfway mark of the book, everything changes. I mean, everything changes in a hurry. As we get many fight scenes rather than just chase and evasion scenes, the book starts picking up again. You know, so many great, great characters are introduced relatively late into the piece. And like I said, this just completely changes the complexion of the first half, in my opinion. Because what starts off as like a relatively slow and dull book turns into this intense, engaging, proper thriller novel as things start coming together and that rising action just skyrockets. Like it's like it's hit like nitro or something. It just skyrockets. And, you know, leaving the book in a great place before the climactic scenes. And, yeah, I was just very impressed how, you know, it transitioned into that other gear so, like, effortlessly, so seamlessly. There wasn't, like, sort of, like, you know, a choppy part in the middle. It didn't feel that it was trying to rush into something. It was like, okay, it's going slow, it's going slow. And then suddenly, you know, there's that progression that you don't really notice. And then once the high point comes, you're like, oh, there was progression. I just didn't really notice this until, you know, you go and sort of look back into the first half of the novel. And, you know, I feel like this is a bit surprising for me because, again, since Inferno was the first Dan Brown book I read, that's really the only benchmark or normal that I have to compare Inferno with. And if you remember, in Origin... There's action right away. There's action maintained throughout the first half. You know, there's never really a part where it slacks off. Here, it starts on a low point. You know, it's like a longer book, like a 600, 700 pages book rather than a 400 page book. Because like it takes the time in like what I want to say are, you know, like I keep saying it again, introductory phases. Middle phases again, not really up to that acceleration point I was expecting. But once you start nearing the halfway point, everything changes. And I feel like that's sort of different and it's kind of really cool that Dan Brown trusted himself that he could make up for that time spent. And he gave himself that a, a bit of extra time to, you know, sort of settle into this writing and sort of get set and then really start hitting the high points in, you know, the, uh, you know, the reader's mind and just really get their heart pounding to a point where... Once you reach the midpoint, you're in a state where like you're hanging on to the on to just every word where in a bit more earlier stages, you're not really engaged, you know, you're not really connected to the characters, you're sort of just trying to get through it, hoping that something bigger happens, and it absolutely does. It's a very well written first half, that's what I would say. Um like I said, I do realize that it was a bit slower than most thrillers. But once it gets into the action, like I've already said multiple times, it really gets into it. And it's a great overall start for the, you know, the entire novel. And I was very, very happy with what I got for the first half. Disappointed in the, you know, the first, I would say, few chapters. But it really makes up again. I was very, very surprised. I can't express that enough that, um, you know, the real pickup that happened but yeah, I'll leave it there for the introductory and middle phases. 
Anyways, so <laughs> moving on, we get into discussing the characters so far in the novel. And to start it off, I feel that this book again has a brilliant cast of characters and it really provides Robert Langdon with a strong and formidable supporting cast that either, you know, stay, stay stick with him or obstruct him throughout, you know, achieving his goal in the novel. The main thing, though, that I wanted to mention in this segment of the episode was the fact that almost every single side character in the novel is a great character. And what I mean by this is that, you know, you're confused. That's I feel like that's the best word I can use about where their loyalties lie. And they change sides quite often. You know, not your surprise per se, like you sort of see it coming. But instead, you know, I feel like it's to make sure that the environment of the book always keeps fresh and is just ever changing. And in these exchanges, though, I feel that Dan Brown is coming dangerously close to the classic bad guy turning into good guy or good guy turning into bad guy ploy. And personally, for me, that is the worst change a character could have. And it really discredits any actions or values or morals or ethics that they might have had before the sudden change, you know, to either fighting for or against the cause. And what this does for me is that it disconnects the character from the rest of the system that the author has so meticulously set up and just makes it really unsatisfactory overall. You know, be it in a climactic setting or, you know, just in any other... what happened there in any other plot, you know, part of the plot line and the development of the, the novel. I just, I just never liked this ploy because you're sort of adding like a completely new character to the book, you know, because you have one side of, you know, let's say it's character A. If character A is evil, you got one side of him. But once you're showing more of his good qualities where he's turning on to the good side, you have a completely different version of character character A. So, you know, you sort of have two different character A's and it sort of really makes it sort of muddy and murky in the reader's mind. And they don't know if they want to like or dislike the character for their actions because I'm going to compare it to Harry Potter here. I feel like that's the best thing I have for it. I, I'm hoping everyone has read Harry Potter. I hope I'm not spoiling anything. But, you know, Snape, you know, he is... Professor Snape, I'm talking about. He is portrayed as a negative character in, you know, the start of the novel. But once you get up to the seventh book, he suddenly turns into a really good character. And you realize that he's sort of been a double agent. And you've got sort of two different versions of Snape, you know? And once he turns good, I feel like his turning good, you know, span is very short. So it doesn't really take place there. But if you look at most other double agents or people that use this ploy, I feel that it really just doesn't do good for the character. I really, I don't want to say hate. Hate is a very strong word. But I completely dislike this ploy very much. And I can't emphasize that enough. But, you know, so far, the author hasn't completely descended into this realm of ploys, which is a relief, because otherwise, I would have been really disappointed in the book, because the book is so good, I don't want to be ruined with something like this. And, yeah, I feel like that's that sort of displays my dislike for this kind of ploy. And just another thing I wanted to talk about was the fact that, you know, 
Each character is a great representation of what happens when an author puts complete effort into the design of their cast. And, you know, most of the people in this book are written so very well. And I have very high expectations after their actions in the second half of the book. And I really hope that I'm not disappointed because so far this is shaping up to be probably one of my top three novels. And I was very pleased uh, with the character development in this book. And even though, you know, some of them aren't exactly relatable, all of them have a way about them. And each one was fun to read for just different reason each time. So, like, you have a symphony of reasons why you like reading each character. And, yeah, I'll end it off there. All of the characters are in a strong position heading into, the, heading into the tail end of this novel. And I hope that their growth just continues and is what is shaping up and what has been set up to be an exciting, exciting, exhilarating second half of Inferno. But yeah, guys, that about wraps up this episode. And in summary, I would just like to say that Inferno has been a treat to read so far. But again, I've said this like a hundred times, I feel like already. I hope, I dream that the climax is as good as it's being hyped up to be because honestly, I'm getting a bit of deja vu because I keep thinking how good Origin started and what happened afterwards. But yeah, for the sake of this brilliant beginning, I'm really hoping that the climax is just as good or better than this first half of the novel and yeah that is about it from my side as always thank you so 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 much for listening and if you enjoyed it please share the podcast with anyone you think would enjoy it and remember that i upload every saturday so look out for that with that said i'll see you guys in the next episode where again i will be covering the second half of the book no that will be the climax that's been hyped up so much almost just by me uh again the last theme which will be morality and conceptions of the afterlife and we'll be doing a clinical review on the climax the conclusion how the characters are ended and how i feel the book ended was it a good place to end the book and yeah that's where i'll leave it and we'll be done with the actual book inferno there and then you know we'll finish it out with a review of inferno and that will finish our journey within inferno And then we'll have the ninth episode within this period where we will have a guest on the show where we will discuss Origin, Inferno, get their views on these two books. And then we move on to the 10th episode where I will be crowning a novel prize winner. The first one, the inaugurating novel prize winner. And this will be the better book between Origin and Inferno. Let me know down in the comments which, so far, you know, which book you think should win the award, Inferno or or Origin. And yeah, that is my uh, plan for the next few weeks. Uh, With that said, though, that will be a wrap on this episode. You know, can't look too far into the future. I'm Armin Prasher. You just heard literal talks, and I'll see you guys in the next one. Bye bye.